I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. James Mullinger joins me now, the popular English comedian who a few years ago moved to Atlantic Canada, recently published a memoir, Brit Happens or Living the Canadian Dream. It's a fine book, funny and full of insights about Eastern Canada that make one want to go there. The book also features a fascinating look at comedy from the early spark that young James encounters listening to comedy albums. Then uh, certain movies that interest him in the art and craft of stand-up comedy. I'll ask James about how, how he arrived at his style of comedy, about performing, and the work he's continuing to do, not just with live performance, but television as well. James Mullinger is a writer, comedian, filmmaker, and public speaker. He has over 20 years' experience in publishing as well, having served as comedy and photographic editor for uh, British GQ magazine. He moved to Canada in February 2014, and since his arrival has uh, sold out uh, comedy shows across the country, appeared on CBC Radio's The Debaters, as well as specials of his own. He is also the co-founder of Edit Magazine, Atlantic Canada's first-ever international magazine, an award-winning premium media brand. He's also done remarkable work raising money for various charities as a comedian and keynote speaker. His website is at jamesmullinger.com. This uh, book is published by Goose Lane Editions. He joined me from his uh, home in Rothsay, New Brunswick, last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, James Mullinger. Mr. Mullinger, good morning. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good yourself. Very good indeed. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I appreciate you having me on. You're very (laughs) kind. It's nice to talk to you. Um, Brit Happens is such a great title for a book. Um, It's got a lot of heart in it, as I was just telling you before we started. Um, This move from England, where where you and your wife and your family, um, you have successful careers in magazines. Uh, You give that up, uh, and you actually did some comedy there. I guess people must ask you all the time, what was the draw to, to Canada, and especially the, the, the uh, Atlantic part of Canada? Yes, it's, it's definitely a question that, that we got asked a lot. And, and even now, as we come up to kind of being here for almost a decade, people still ask it. And, I mean, the main thing was, was very much quality of life. You know, um, living in London, obviously, in our 20s was a wonderful thing. It was a fun thing. There was obviously so much to do there. But as we kind of got older, as, as, as we had our first child, and then we were pregnant with our second child, and we just realized that we weren't getting the best of big city life, and also we were craving um, something else. And I guess by something else, I mean uh, being together, being with our kids, and the lives that we led just didn't allow for that. And we kind of realized that if we stayed in London and stayed in the jobs we were in, 10 years would go by and we would not have spent any time together. We wouldn't have been with our kids. And, um, and we realized we had to make a change there and then or nothing would change. Yeah, and, and you, you deal with that in the book about having to contend with, say, living a cosmopolitan life, a city life, if you will, and, and, and um, I guess the, the snobbishness that... that, that um, that, that might happen or, or, or that, that settles in, I guess, if, if conscious or otherwise, uh, as you move to, say, a small town there in New Brunswick, right? That, that's exactly it. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing because, you know, when you make a, a decision like that, I, I think, you know, we certainly thought there would be lots of, of compromise. We thought, well, we're, gi- we're giving up lots um, to do this. But actually, um, it hasn't, turned, hasn't really turned out like that in the... Uh, we really couldn't be happier with it, with our new lives, and I think the big surprise for us was how much there really is to do in a in a small town. Mm. There's so much 
you know, arts and culture and, and so much to enjoy. Um, and, of course, there's more choices in a big city like London. But given we weren't making it to most of the things we wanted to do, how many things did we need to be missing? Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, especially now we're in a place, you know, where there's, you know, there might be uh, less things to do, but we're still not getting to everything. So, uh, you know, we really, you know, it's essentially turned out that there hasn't been a compromise in the quality of life improvement that's been through the road. What accent do your children have? Good question. They're both very Canadian, or, or they sound Canadian to me. My, my, my oldest had a, had a very British accent when we moved here. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, now they, I mean, to me, they both sound fully North American. Uh, but that said, there are certainly people here that say they sound British, and I think the Britishness in them is very much that they hear me pronounce things a certain way, so possibly <laughs> yeah. they just repeat that. So, you know, they might, and of course British words, like they might say, um, they might say the loo rather than the bathroom. Mm. Uh, they might overuse the word lovely, which I'm definitely prone to do. So I think it's it's certain words, you know, rubbish bin rather than garbage can. So I, I think it's, it's more specific words they've heard me say. Uh, but yes, to me, they sound very North American. Although that said, when I go back to England now, people have, people accuse me of sounding uh, sounding North American mainly just because of the words that I use. Mm, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all comparable. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's really to admire, as I'm reading Brit Happens, is, is how uh, you and your family um, uh, make um, where you live home very quickly and how, how embedded in the community you all are and 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 it's a conscious effort to to make it seem like home um and then then i, I was thinking about it i mean that, that's the experience of a lot of immigrants who come to this country right definitely yeah and, and i've been lucky enough to meet lots of other people but you know, during my time here who've moved here for, for obviously for many different reasons i mean we are very blessed in that we we were obviously privileged enough to, to be able to make the choice to come here. But you know, I've made lots of friends that, of course, that moved here for, for other reasons, i.e. reasons that, that weren't through choice, whether it be, you know, um, war or, you know, so many terrible reasons that people might be kind of forced to leave their countries of birth. And um, But, yeah, the one thing that, that I think all immigrants have in common here is that, is that or, or certainly the ones that are, that are lucky enough to call friends and, and, have, and have met and spoken to, is that Canada is an extremely welcoming place for, for an immigrant to come, uh, regardless of, of the reasons why. And, I mean, again, not to disparage uh, England, but um, England is, is less so. And England is, is a place where, kind of like America, there is a lot of divisiveness, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, quite hateful rhetoric about um, immigration. And yet, conversely, in Canada, the overwhelming feeling is one of, of welcoming uh, immigrants and newcomers and, and being kind. And um, for that reason alone, I feel like, you know, I mean, I, I, I love this country. I'm so proud to, to, to have come here. Um, but just seeing the way that Canadians welcome uh, immigrants and indeed support them. And again, I was coming here, moving to a place where lots of the things that I wanted to do uh, were not typical. It wasn't typical for, for, for a British comedian to move to a small town in New Brunswick and, and try and get you know, big shows off the ground and start mm-hmm. TV shows. But yeah, even though it sounded strange to people, everyone said, well, what can we do to help? And it's fascinating to me to, to see that kind of replicated across the country. You know, um, when, when people move and they say they want to do something, Canadians, uh, whether it be in a, a, a big city or a small town, Canadians want to, to get behind people. And I, I think it's, it's just the most beautiful and honorable 
uh, a trait of of Canadians, and um, maybe it's because it's it's such a young country. But um, but I feel like you know, welcoming people is is just built into the fabric of this place, and I love that. The other thing that you do um, so well in the book is you, you write so lovingly, James, about Atlantic Canada, um, and, and that's a, the, the one of the more charming parts of the book. Um, uh, I felt, uh, as a, as a uh, British Columbian, for example, someone who's, who's never traveled the country, really, I, I felt like I wanted to go there. And, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will say that uh, after reading the book. That's nice. That's really nice to hear. And again, I mean, it's definitely something which is the greatest compliment to, to, to hear because, you know, I fell in love with this. With this uh, I mean, again, as you can tell, I mean, I love all of Canada. And, and as a comedian, I've, I've traveled the whole country. But yes, Atlantic Canada is definitely, it was the first place that I visited in the year 2000 when my wife and I first started dating. And it's the place that I fell in love with. And, and also, I mean, it is the area that I think a lot of Canadians aren't overly familiar with, yeah, or they yeah. have a kind of a, a, you know, a preconceived idea about the place. And, and that's no one's fault other than, you know, there's, there's many reasons for that. I mean, for many years, I feel like this region was promoted from a tourism perspective as the home of, you know, lobsters and lighthouses and mm-hmm. trees. And as a result, uh, lots of people understandably think that, that, that that's all, all there is here. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've been I've, I've in love with the place, I've been in love with the people. And really, it, very much the focus of the book was, you know, as with any memoir, you have to find uh, you have to decide when you're writing it, what is the thing I'm going to focus on. So for me, it was very much about what were the things about my childhood and my upbringing that led me to fall in love with this place. And I think really, I mean, which is why in the book I talk a lot about, you know, my difficult childhood and, and, and being bullied and so forth, because all of those things created in me, obviously, A, a hatred of bullies, but also a love of welcoming people. So I felt like it was that those things in my childhood that made me fall in love with this place so much when I came here because I, I couldn't believe that there was just so many people wanting to be to be nice to people and and that to me just warmed my heart and again I've you know been here almost a decade now and every day I wake up and I I, I look at the water view and I you know I, I never stop appreciating being here and and that's really nice to hear that that comes through in the book. This idea of, of um, uh, loving, uh, welcoming people and, and being nice to people, I mean, th- th- that really is the style of your comedy as well. And, and you talk about this in the book, about uh, how um, you arrive at that, or, or not, not, not necessarily how you arrive at that, but how, how you are as a comedian as opposed to other people who are perhaps more abrasive or aggressive. Um, yeah. Was that a, a conscious effort on your part when you were thinking about comedy, that this was the way you were going to do it? That's an excellent question, and and I I think yeah because one of the things that I try and even though my comedy is very much inclusive and I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, I definitely don't um, I don't disapprove of comedians that do right. different things. I'm yeah. a great believer that you know um, uh, there is there is a comedy style for everyone, and and you know I've I've never thought that any particular comedy should be banned or shouldn't be done, um, but then people have a choice when they buy a ticket. And someone might choose to go and buy uh, a ticket to see a comedian that is known for being offensive. And if that is the case, uh, and you choose to go, don't then complain if you're offended, because that's what that, that person does. And but, so, I mean, it's a very interesting question, because I don't know if I ever set out specifically to be uh, inclusive and be uh, uplifting. And again, I mean, you know, I'm the butt of all of my jokes. I never, I never want anyone in the audience to 
felt uncomfortable. So I don't know where that necessarily stemmed from, other than um, certainly coming here, I realized that, I, I mean, I guess from a commercial standpoint, I realized that it was a, a, a great way to do comedy video from a, a business perspective. But I think mainly it was just because that's what I, I wanted to do. And it, it was never really a, a decision. It was more just what felt right to me. And when I'm on a stage, I feel so grateful that, that anyone would ever want to come out and see me live. You know, I spent, you know, so many years at the kind of, Bottom rung of the of the of the of the comedy ladder, uh, you know, toiling away doing bad gig after bad gig, getting booed off stage. So to ever reach a point where people will choose to get a babysitter and 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 come out and buy a ticket to see me, I'm I'm kind of so honoured by it that I I kind of almost don't want anyone in the room to not have a good time. So I think mm. that's where it, it it came from, and it's just kind of become organically like that. And yes, even when I'm you know, dealing with, if I'm dealing with a heckler, I still kind of find myself not necessarily going down the abusive uh, road, which again, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a comedian like Jimmy Carr, if you go and see Jimmy Carr, that's what you're going to get, and he's very good at it, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's to be admired, that style of comedy. But, but yes, yeah, just for me personally, I just found um, um, wanting it to be something which everyone felt comfortable, everyone felt happy, everyone felt uplifted. That was just, just, just it just, came out that way and uh and, and and it's resonated with people which which means everything you've been able to, to travel canada um uh, doing uh, your your work as a comedian uh there's an, a funny episode in the book about coming to do a private gig here in vancouver um <laughs> and and, and uh, if, if people read that part of the book they'll realize how just obnoxious the wealth is here in vancouver um, it's a pretty good gig for you as a comedian, but <laughs> for, for a lot of us who live here, at the, we realize what, what we dislike about this place, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. It's, yeah, I'd never really looked at it that way, but yeah, I guess it does come across like that, and it's true. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a crazy thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a it, people should read the book. It's it's a private gig that, that James did, where um, he was invited to to uh, uh, perform at a private party. Stays at a, a fancy hotel in town and is taken to the gig in a limousine back and forth. And and uh, anyway, um, I digress. Um, well, and and, yeah. and and again, I mean, tellingly, the, the, you know, the gig didn't go very well. Which again, I mean, mm. I always. Yeah. I, I always um, blame myself for. I never, I never blame uh, scenarios. Um, although <laughs> you know there are situations when, um, when you're more likely a gig is going to go better. But um, yeah, I'm a great believer that whenever it goes badly, I, I blame myself. But 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 with that rationale, when it goes well, I can take all the credit. So it's <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to ask James, I was is, having seen the country as you have and performed in, in, in various parts of the country. Is, is humor uh, different in different parts of the country? I mean, I went to a show here in Vancouver, and, and uh, this is before the pandemic, um, and, and I realized um, it's pretty tough. Uh, a pretty tough or savvy crowd, if you will. And then I went to a show in the Burbs, and um, I don't know, it's probably where I was sitting, but I, I found that everybody was laughing at everything. Yes, that's, it's, it's, a good, um, it's, a, it's a very good point because it does vary to an extent, but, I mean, to be honest, it varies so much from uh, England where it's 
uh, you know, doing comedy in England is extremely hard for, for, for many reasons, but one of which one of which is the audiences, especially in comedy clubs, they are very drunk. Mm. Like, you know, and of course, I mean, that's a, a British trait, but to give you an example, I mean, in a Canadian comedy club, you will run a show for 100 minutes straight through, um, and you'll do table service. In England, you could never do table service because people are drinking so much mm. that they literally have an intermission every 20 minutes. And in those 20 minutes in, in, intermissions, People are literally doing shots. They're stockpiling, you know, three or four pints to, to last in the 20 minutes. Um, so when you do a comedy show in a British comedy club, generally for the majority of the audience, comedy wasn't their main reason for coming out. Like comedy is probably third or fourth down the list. Number one would be kind of getting drunk. Number two might be having a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then comedy is third or fourth. And, and so in the UK, it, 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 I mean, it's it's brutal, but it's a great way to learn the craft because when you walk out on stage in a British comedy club, you need to get them laughing very quickly or they're going to be throwing things or booing you off. Um, conversely, in, in, in Canada, and again, this kind of goes for, for all, um, you know, every single province, every single part of Canada, people will give you a bit more grace. Like, like you know, they're not going to boo you off. They're not going to be impolite and they're, they're, they're not going to be drunk or certainly not British drunk. Um, so as a result, you can kind of uh, ease into it a bit gentler. Um, so the gulf of difference between coming from the UK, where there's this, which again, like I say, is a great place to learn because it makes you very tight and very honed very quickly, and then coming here where audiences for the most part are very nice. Um, I, I do notice slight differences um, across Canada, and then again to your point about you know, a, a, a small town in the suburbs compared to a big city. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, compared to the UK, it's such a pleasure. Whether I'm in, you know, doing a, a comedy club in downtown Toronto or down, down downtown uh, Vancouver, or indeed in a in a tiny uh, town in, in in Prince Edward Island. Um, to me, compared to the UK, it's all lovely. So it's just nice. To, it's nice to have an audience that isn't throwing things at you. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing. But the one thing I do find across the country is um, the main reason why a Canadian uh, audience comes to uh, a comedy show is to, is to laugh. And as a result, um, that in itself is just a pleasure. They're not they're not looking to have a fight. They're not looking yeah. to necessarily get drunk. Or if they are going to get drunk, it's not the main reason they came out. So... Um, as a result, yeah, I would say it's, I, I never stop appreciating that. The other delightful thing to read in the book is, is um, your upbringing, if you will, as a movie fan. And um, seeing, um, uh, there's one scene in the book where, where you talk about the, the documentary Comedian, the, the Jerry Seinfeld documentary, and, and just, just what that film sparked inside of you. Uh, you, you mentioned another movie that... Um, I actually haven't seen, but I actually have a copy of it. I found it somewhere in a shop one time. A punchline is that the, oh, yeah. the with with Tom Hanks? Is that with Sally Field? That's exactly it. Yeah, yes, it's funny, and it, it's interesting you mentioned both those movies. I mean, I'm sitting here at my desk, and I have a poster of of, of Jerry Seinfeld comedian that he uh, signed for me to my right, and I'm, I can see the DVD case for Punchline as well right in front of me. And yeah, definitely those two movies just. Both of them inspired me in, in different ways, but to me it was just that thing of seeing, I mean, in the case of the comedian, seeing Seinfeld, you know, the, the considered by many to be one of the greatest comedians of all time, seeing him uh, struggle and, and, and essentially fail and, and, and struggle at gigs as he kind of tried to come up with a new set was a, a very eye-opening and enlightening moment for me when I kind of said, wow, you know, if, if, if even he can struggle, then surely... 
uh, uh, that almost yeah, gives me permission to fail as well. Um, and then in the case of Punchline, it was it was interesting just watching a movie about people who were kind of oddballs like me, who who just decided that they wanted to to, to try this thing and found this other people, other like-minded people, and just seeing that connection that they all had, I was I was fascinated by it. Just this this, this idea of um, people from all different walks of life all coming together with this one goal, which is just to make people laugh. And even if it was just men making people laugh just, just once, um, uh, that would be enough to get that buzz. And I, I, it, that really, really attracted me to the, to the craft. And I think it was just all of those little things that throughout my childhood were kind of these, these tipping points yeah. of, of pushing me towards the stage. I got to watch that this weekend. I, I, I thankfully have the DVD. Um, nice. This um, thing that you, you said a moment ago, but if, if watching Seinfeld, if he can struggle, it gave you permission to do so. You were able to tell him that as well. What was his reaction when when, when you said that to him? I, I, I mean, it was beautiful. And, and again, I mean, it's one of those things. And I think I touched upon this in the book about this idea of people saying, "Yeah, never meet your heroes." Yeah. And my experience of meeting my heroes has always been absolutely wonderful. And yeah, I mean to be able to sit down and actually tell Seinfeld how um, how he ins- how he inspired me. And again, he sent me a, a, a note that said, uh, "As Rayleigh, uh, he says I was delighted that I put you on the comedy part." As as Rayleigh says in Goodfellas, for guys like us, there was no other way. Mm. And and just the idea of of Seinfeld even calling us calling us like as the, us guys, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. him just yeah, be, being in that group of guys and. Um, I think that's one of the things that I've always just loved and admired about him is that, you know, he has had so many opportunities to obviously do so many other things, but yet he always comes back to stand-up. And a lot of people, you know, become successful and then they leave stand-up behind because, let's face it, it, it's hard and it's it's a grind. And it's probably less of a grind, I guess, if you're flying around on private planes. But but still, it's it's not an easy thing. And and he's um, always come back to to stand-up because he loves the craft and I think that's the thing that I love so much about it and really any creative field you know whether someone be you know a painter or a writer or a comedian whatever it is that they, that they do if you love that thing it doesn't really matter at what level you're doing it whether it's to five people or five thousand you know if you love that that thing then you are never happier when you're doing it and I think that's the thing that's, that's really stuck with me and even though I mean he has everything and and I have Next to nothing, uh, I am still never happier than when I'm doing stand-up, even if it's just to five people. There's an episode in the book, James, where you talk about losing a dear friend, um, somebody who took their own life, and um, uh, mourning them and, and, and the sadness, obviously, that comes with that, and then finding that you have to, uh, say, appear at a fundraiser the next night. Um, this is incredibly insightful in terms of the, the work that you do as a comedian, the craft, if you will. Um because uh, I, I keep wondering, how do you do it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Yes, delivery looks a bit like that. But you're right. It's um, it, it, the um, because there's so many instances where you have to do the job, and something has happened mm-hmm. that puts you in a place that you don't feel like being very funny, and it that can be something absolutely kind of you know life changingly heartbreaking like that where um everything was you know i basically never felt less funny i've never felt less like doing stand-up especially with all of the other things you know that were coming together um you know 
mainly at that moment, for example, the fact that, you know, it, he was the reason that I had I had moved here. He was someone who I'd kind of worked with. There were so many reasons why they, like, the last thing I really needed to do was, was get on stage. But um, you have to get up there and do it. And um, I, I, I guess it's because as a craft, it's, it's so different. I mean, the best example I can give, I guess, is, is, is that there's this misnomer often when people say that, you know, oh, the the comedian must have been the class clown or mm. the funny guy in the pub. And actually, conversely, generally, the the comedian isn't the funny guy in the pub or the, or the class clown. It's actually the person that sat quietly in the corner kind of observing everyone. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm very... Ask my wife and kids, they'll tell you I'm not funny at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... Um, and, and I don't know if I am necessarily that funny. I mean, I don't even know if I'm, I'm even very good company. I'm, I'm, I mean, oddly, one thing that I think, and again, I don't know if I touch on this that explicitly in the book, but I, I, even though I do that job, I'm somewhat introverted in, in real life. I'm mm. intimidated and scared by kind of, you know, one-on-one or, or, or small gatherings. And, a, and, a, and a, 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 a psychologist wants to explain that to me in, in saying that, you know, when you're on stage, uh, you're in control, and so as a result, that is that 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 fits with where your psyche's at. But when you're in a in a conversation with someone, one on one, or at a dinner party, the reason that you're scared is that you're not in control. And I think all of that comes back to that same idea where it, it's all about kind of compartmentalizing. And even though on that 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 terrible day when my my you know all I wanted to think about was my my friend Lloyd, that I had to get on stage and do the do the job for an hour. Um, it's something which, over years of doing this, you, because I mean, there's, there's, there's many moments when you might have an argument with someone and you have to walk out. Or in a lot of cases, I'll be kind of when I'm on the road and I'm doing two shows a night. Sometimes I'll be napping in the dressing room mm-hmm. behind the, the stage, and I'll hear my name called, and I'll suddenly wake up and run out. And and you basically just go into this. It, it, it's almost like a kind of an almost out of body experience when. Um, uh, but of course, and that, that kind of comes from from years of, of practice, and you're kind of up there, and you're spinning plates, and your your brain's going through the rolodex in your head, trying to find what's the what's the best next joke to do. Um, but yes, it, it's a it's, it's a hard thing to explain. But I guess it just it's one of the things that comes down to, to repetition and that uh, Malcolm Gladwell concept of of, of ten thousand hours. And you know, I guess uh, I guess a mechanic can probably fix a car uh, while thinking about fifty other things. Yeah. And do it kind of in, almost in their sleep, um, whereas I I could not even begin to fix a car. So you know, it's, uh, I think it's that it's the ten thousand hours thing. And and what what I found fascinating, and I I like comedy in terms of as a, as an audience member as a fan, but could never do it, is reading your book and and seeing how all of one's senses say. Uh, are working, whether it's uh, hearing the audience, uh, uh, talking to them, um, uh, stuff going on in your head, and then the, the physical part of it. I mean, it is a physical, I mean, you, you feel the adrenaline, the endorphins, the dopamine. Um, it's all part of it, isn't it? And, and when you're on, you're on. You're not off, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, and, and and it is all of those things, and it's interesting how many senses are involved. Because as you say, you're you, you're listening to the sound of the audience, and then and and you do a punchline, and maybe it gets a bigger laugh than you're expecting. Yeah. So suddenly your brain pivots, and you say, "Oh well, actually, if they like that, they're going to love this next joke yeah. even more." So I'll do that, or vice versa. Or sometimes it's just one person in the audience that isn't laughing, and you're thinking, "What have I got to do to get that one person to?" 
to, to laugh. Um, and then suddenly they do, and you think, well, this is bizarre. Like, what was it about that one joke that made them finally crack? And, um, and yeah, yeah, to your point, it, it's this kind of insanely kind of sensory thing that, of just of, of spinning all these plates. And I, I, I can't really describe it because I can't multitask in real life at all. And yet, uh, <laughs> and somehow on stage, all these things are, are happening at once, and it's... Um, uh, and again, like I said, it's very much out of my out of my comfort zone. I mean, as a, as a child, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in school plays. I wasn't, um, uh, I wasn't at all, you know, uh, confident, and I'm, I'm, I'm still not really. But it was it was just a kind of, I think, a love of the craft and basically realizing that, uh, as per what every comedian has done, I have to get out there and get on stage as often as possible and just um, and just keep doing it. And I'm a great believer that anyone can do it. Any, anyone. Uh, if the, the shyest, quietest person could could do comedy. It's just a case of how many times are you willing to to get on stage and get booed off before uh, getting good. Yeah, a heart surgeon could do it too, right? Yeah, well, well, that's it. That's it. There you go. That's exactly it. He, um, a heart surgeon nailed it in in one go. But like I say, I think um, for him it was it was his years of practicing, yeah. uh, studying his nerve. Uh, or, or keeping his cool under extreme pressure that gave him the... Uh, I, think that's, I think basically the only person that can ever take the stand-up immediately is a hot <laughs> <laughs> The um, I read somewhere um, that you're working on a sitcom now, is that right? Yes, exactly. Yes, Actually, yes, we, we finished filming it about a, a month ago, so yeah, the, the first season's been done. <laughs> and so where, where and when can we see that? There, yes, it's um, so it'll be on Bell Five TV One. So anyone with uh, Bell Five, it'll be on Channel One um, in the comedy section. And uh, Bell has uh, I, I do another show for them, which is a, a documentary show called Atlantic Edition, where I interview uh, Atlantic Canadians uh, like uh, Classified, uh-huh. and um, it's uh, and it's we're on the third season. And they said, you know, we've had some success recently with with uh, sitcoms by Jonathan Torrens and, and Mary Walsh. Would you like to do one? And do you have an idea? And I said, I do have an idea. It's about a British comedian who accidentally moves to a small town in New Brunswick. And uh, <laughs> and they said, love it. Wherever you can get the idea. <laughs> and uh, and it's of course, I mean, heavily fictionalised. Um, I mean, the characters I share my name and my children do actually play my children. Um, but an amazing actress by the name of Catherine Kent from Prince Edward Island plays my wife. Um, and uh, and and it all went to plan. So as of spring next year, we'll, we'll be on Channel One um, for all Bell subscribers. And I'm uh, I'm both nervous uh, and excited. Oh, we can't wait to see that out here as well. Um, and and throughout all this time, uh, you you're you're still involved with a magazine that, that you and your wife created, Edit. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. We 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 publish it. It's four issues a year. It's quarterly. It's distributed nationally. And we both um, uh, produced it uh, out of our home together using, um, I guess, you know, skills that we kind of learned uh, working for much bigger magazines. Although um, when she was on Vanity Fair and and Monocle magazine and I was on GQ and there was about 100 people doing the jobs that two of us do. So we've had to learn lots of different uh, things, but it's, uh, it's a joy to do. But by the way, back to magazines for just a moment. Um... You were the uh, photographic editor at GQ for what was it, fourteen years? Um, exactly. Um, so you were involved with, say, f- photographers that would appear in the magazine. Um, 
would you direct them, for example, as to, to what you wanted to see or, or what suggesting shots even to, to the, the people that you, you, you'd take on for, for a gig, say? Yes, exactly, yes. So, I mean, so I have, I myself have literally no photography uh, skills of any kind. In actual fact, it's quite well, my, my father thought it was hilarious when I uh, <laughs> got the job because when he was, uh, when I was a kid, he would teach photography at my scout group. And he used to, he, I remember one time uh, as a teenager, he asked me if he could borrow uh, some of my photographs. And I thought, oh, that's good. He, he wants to borrow some of my photographs. And it was actually as, a, as an example of what not to do. <laughs> um, and then somehow I ended up as a, as a photo editor. And, but yes, I mean, to, to answer your question, uh, essentially the job was we would come up with ideas and briefs for the photographers. So um, that could be compiling mood boards. Um, and of course, I mean, the problem with working on a big magazine is very much there are so many people involved. So you would get a cover shoot with someone mm. and then um, there's 20 different people have different ideas. And uh, the editor, and there was all these ideas like, well, you know, a black and white cover doesn't work. It has to be in color. Uh, it, it needs to have eye contact. And then every now and again, you would come out with a magazine, a, a cover that was black and white and had no eye contact. And it would be the best selling issue which kind of goes back to that Robert Evans idea about Hollywood, about no one really knows anything. I mean, in magazines, yeah. it's just all guesswork, and people are constantly saying, well, this is the type of cover that sells, or if sex sells, but then we would have, you know, uh, something non-sexy on the cover, and that would sell. Um, but, yeah, so really it was just, it was, a, I mean, obviously a very, very creative job, where basically you're all just kind of trying to figure things out and work out what looks good, and, and then that kind of constant uh, debate between art and commerce, and you want to create something beautiful and brilliant, but then equally you need it need it to sell. Um, but yeah, so it would be working closely with the photographers and coming up with ideas, which when it came to doing the comedy issue was just a, uh, such a blast because, of course, you're photographing comedians with great photographers and uh, and everyone's got, got crazy ideas and, and, and you would just do whatever it took to come up with something absolutely hilarious. The, the thing that I can't get over as I'm thinking about the book and talking to you now, James, is, is um, uh, how, um, and, and you point this out throughout the book, is, is how lucky you have been w- with life. And, and, uh, but at the same time, um, it, it, there's a lot of hard work that's involved, and, and we, should, we, we should stress that because it, um, making these decisions to, 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 say, give up a career in magazines and, and to move to a different country. I mean, th- these are things not to be taken lightly, um, and yet you're able to, to, to make them work out. And, and I, I would say that um, it's a, a part your own, say, will or, or, or hard work and determination, but it, it's, it's, there's luck involved in, in that too, isn't there? Absolutely, and I think that there always is in life because, I mean, in, in the same way that we can have, you know, terrible bad luck, we, we can have good luck. And I think the... the Ultimately, what it boils down to is that you can, um, you know, I think when someone's, I mean, there's that, there's that famous phrase about, uh, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, mm. But the reality is, is that um, there is that, because there's plenty of people that work extremely hard and work 100 times harder than me and, and don't get anywhere near the, the breaks that I've got. But, um, I mean, you know, the GQ thing being a perfect example where I left university and then, you know, uh, got a one-week internship at GQ. Now, that's extremely fortunate. There was dumb luck that that week I happened to phone 
um, look, you know, about the internship and happened to be the person that got got that one week internship. Now, obviously, it was you know hard work that kept me there for 14 years, but it was extremely lucky that I I got my foot in the door there. And then I would say similarly, moving here, I mean, moving to Atlantic Canada and wanting to continue a career and start a magazine and all of these things. I mean, none of that's easy at all. But here, the luck thing was uh, very much the way in which people welcomed me here because. Um, I couldn't have done any of what I've done here if it wasn't for the fact that people in my neighborhood and in, in this province uh, all said, what can we do to help? And, and without that, I wouldn't have been able to, to, to do any of this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I never, ever stop. I never stop appreciating uh, the good luck that I've had. And indeed, you know, always want to kind of share um advice and good fortune and good luck and, and indeed anyone else looking to kind of do anything like what I've done I'm always looking to looking to help them because uh, people were kind enough to help me. I think that's what a lot of people get out of the book they'll find some wisdom in it um, they'll laugh out loud I laughed out loud a couple of times reading this um, but, but there is some wisdom in here and in, in the examples that you give um, I think will we'll, uh, certainly help some people. It's been such a pleasure uh, to talk to you today, James. I, I really enjoyed the book. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much. It means the world. And like I said, I love listening to you. So this is really, uh, really an honor to do, and I've been looking forward to it. And thank you for making this the uh, highlight of my week, month, year. <laughs> the website for more is at jamesmullinger.com. The book is called Brit Happens or Living the Canadian Dream. It's published by Goose Lane Editions. It's uh, Author James Mullinger, join me on the line from Rothsay, New Brunswick, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.